The reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 28 together this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. As we come back to the gospel of Mark, the gospel according to Mark this morning, really picking up right where we left off, you notice in in the reading that the baptism of Jesus 
Jesus came, and as we heard last week, and as Luke reminded us just before the baptism this morning, that Jesus was identifying with us in the Jordan River, where the Jews were used to washing the dirt off their body. Jesus gets into the dirty water, as it were, identifying with them, and was baptized to fulfill all righteousness in order that we might follow him, identifying with him in believers' baptism after having confessed our sins and our belief in him, then we identify with him in baptism. As we look at the next several verses this morning, verses 12 through 20, um, I want to consider it really is three different stories linked together or different portions of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and we will link these three together Under the title of the sermon, Following Jesus, so following him in the wilderness, in temptation, and in angelic ministry, being ministered to by angels, and following him in the kingdom, the nearness of the kingdom, and the need that we have to respond because of the nearness of the kingdom, because it has come, and following him as his disciples, following the pattern of these early disciples who immediately left their nets immediately following him wholeheartedly. First, following Jesus in the wilderness. Look again at verse 12. Back up and look at verse 11. Right after Jesus is baptized, a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And then immediately... The Spirit, the Spirit that had descended on him, on Jesus, like a dove, impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. The wilderness is where the Son of God met the adversary of God. Heaven's favorite faces heaven's greatest foe. Heaven had opened up at the baptism. And now hell opens up in the wilderness. The Spirit descended on him and then impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Jesus is filled with the Spirit and then immediately cast out into the desolate wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Who among us is signing up for that filling of the Holy Spirit? It gives a whole new meaning to being filled with the Holy Spirit. To make an old adage new, it's all fun and games until you get cast into the deep wilderness. It's remarkable. At Jesus' baptism, there's no celebratory reception. There's no sit back and and reflect and relax. There's no chance to glory in the baptism. Immediately, verse 12 says, immediately the Spirit impelled him, thrust him out, cast him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism does not induce a state of inner tranquility. Not at all. Three times in these first dozen verses, the Spirit the Holy Spirit is referenced. 
And through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, the Holy Spirit is mentioned only three more times through the entirety of the book. And only one of those references somewhat relates to the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. The Spirit's influence in the life of our Lord is simple, solemn earnestness. The initial work that the Spirit did in Jesus was to cast him out, to impel him. It's literally the same word that is used to cast out demons, to drive out demons. That is what the Spirit is doing to Jesus, driving him out into the wilderness. Not acting against the will of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is actually in control of the messianic mission of Jesus, impelling him forward in the urgent task of accomplishing all righteousness for the sake of the people he came to save impelled him to go out into the wilderness to be tempted. Getting into verse 13 now, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This temptation, it's a period of testing. And in this period of testing, the messianic credentials of Christ are confirmed. Mark has an emphasis here. He's making a point That the struggle that Jesus is facing in the wilderness, the struggle that he is engaged in, is a spiritual one. Right from the outset. It's amazing that this point is made in the life and ministry of Jesus and then that there will still be confusion. But right from the beginning, Jesus makes clear, it is made clear, that he has not arrived on the scene to conquer the Roman armies but rather to take on the powers of evil, of sin, and death. In fact, Mark is so emphatic in making this point here in the outset that he doesn't even record for us any of the dialogue that happened between Jesus and Satan. He doesn't record for us those familiar quotations of Scripture that other gospel writers do. He doesn't even give us any indication of the outcome. If we stop reading in verse 13, we don't know what happened. He was tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beast, and angels were ministering to him. He was impelled to go out into the wilderness. Now, out into the wilderness, back up with me again to verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 9, Jesus came to John the Baptist to the Jordan to be baptized by John. In verse 12, immediately after the baptism, the Spirit impelled impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. Well, he's already in the wilderness. So where is the Spirit impelling Jesus to go? Even further out into the wilderness where he spent 40 days, comparable in so many ways to Israel's 40 years of wandering. And not only that, but time and again, 40 is this round, complete number that is referred to again and again, either 40 days or 40 years. But here it's comparable to 40 years of Israel's wandering. But it's only 
comparable. Listen to what the psalmist writes about Israel's years of wandering in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, God says, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. I say comparable, but want to make clear it's not a close parallel because Israel failed repeatedly through unbelief and disobedience, but not Christ. Not the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's impelled out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, being with the wild beast as the angels were ministering to him. Mark doesn't tell us that he passed the test. He doesn't even allude to it. But we do eventually see, as we continue reading in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus does have authority over demons. So we can bank our bottom dollar on the fact that when Jesus grapples with the demons, the outcome is never in doubt. There's no question. He was tempted by Satan. Unsuccessfully on Satan's part, and successfully on Jesus' part for our sakes. He was with the wild beasts, indicating the severity and the danger of the wilderness. Mark's the only gospel writer that mentions this unique phrase, but making it known to us the initial readership, and to us, the haunting horror of the untamed wilderness. So, going out into the wilderness to be baptized by John, he is thrust or cast out further into the wilderness, so far out that he's with the wild beast. He's he's amidst the severe danger of the untamed beasts out there. Now, more specifically for the initial readership of Mark's gospel in Emperor Nero's Rome, which is the time in which Mark is writing, Christians were, and I'm quoting, covered with hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. What do you think that the event was that was most likely to make you a supreme target for official persecution. It was baptism. What we see happening in the life of Jesus, going straight from the baptismal waters, being thrust further into the wilderness, and dealing with temptation from Satan in the midst of severe danger, untamed wild dogs, Jesus standing in the place of sinners, accomplishing what we could never do, In the days of Nero, again, when Mark is writing this gospel account, when Christian believers took clear public stands for Christ, declaring him Lord and King, they would sometimes go straight from the waters of baptism to the arena to face the wild beasts. So as Christians are being treated this way, they would have the privilege of recalling what Mark has written. Christ, too, was thrown to the wild beasts. 
And the angels ministered to him. Just like they will to all of God's children. I mentioned that hell was opened up in the wilderness. And it came with everything it had at Christ the Lord. But while hell is practically present there, the power of heaven is at Christ's side as the angels minister to him. But not just to him. Psalm 91.11, For God will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Christ wasn't alone in his conflict in the midst of the wilderness as he was facing temptation from Satan. And nor are we in the wilderness of our lives. If, if angelic protection, according to Psalm 91, is afforded to all those who hope in God, then how much more to the Son of God himself? It's God who leads or impels Christ to be tested in the wilderness, but God doesn't thrust him out there and then abandon him to the wilderness. And in the same way, he will not abandon any one of us in the wildernesses of our lives. Now, God doesn't always grant an escape from trials or from testing, but he is always with his people through those trials. Following Jesus in temptation. As God's people, when we endure weakness, trials, persecutions that test our faith, and we are also given, in the midst of enduring the weaknesses, the trials and the persecutions, we are also granted the inestimable privilege of walking through them with Christ. This is the way Peter says it. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, which is no small testing, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we live in the darkness of our world, as we live in a wilderness, surrounded by sin, fighting it within and dealing with it without, we do so following Christ, who is a high priest, who sympathizes with our weaknesses in our trials, in the midst of our persecutions. We walk with him and we trust the ministry of God through his Son, by his Spirit, even among his angels. We heard in the reading from Genesis 3, Eden, all the perfection of Eden and Adam fell. And Adam's fall was our fall. And here we have Jesus entering what we could call 
anti-Eden, just the opposite of Eden, the wilderness, anything but perfect. It was further out in the wilderness. It was among the wild beasts, suffering temptation from Satan. And the last Adam, Christ our Lord, stood. He withstood the temptation in the anti-Eden, and his victory is our victory. In these couple of verses, we have Satan, the wild beasts, and the angels of God all acknowledging in their own way that Jesus Christ is the one who has brought the victory of God's kingdom nigh. Brought it near every one of us which we can see the reality of that picking up in verse 13 as we move into the second point, following Jesus in light of the kingdom that he has established. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a massive scene shift. It, It is, as we move into verse 14 through the end of the book, It is the narrative proper, we might say. It is the body. It's been basically all introduction up until that point, but here begins the body of Mark's gospel account. But as we connect the previous verses with these verses, there's there's a, a, a scene shift that is dramatic. I mean, we have gone from a transcendent ringside seat at a cosmic battle to the real world streets, the real world streets of gospel ministry. So we come down to earth, as it were, with a startling halt. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan. He's with the wild beasts, and the angels are ministering to him. John got arrested. Jesus is preaching. We must, having dealt with the introduction, having it recorded here for us, interpret all of the rest of Mark's story from our behind-the-scenes perspective of the wilderness scenario. The baptism and the temptation, both happening in the wilderness. What we see happening there to Jesus by the Father and the Spirit, the rest of Mark's gospel has to be translated through that lens, interpreted with this in mind. Mark begins with this transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. We had hints of that with the baptism, and now it comes to full fruition. The Apostle John, when he writes his gospel account, he he actually offers some overlap between John the Baptist and Jesus, which did happen. But Matthew and Luke, along with Mark, move, if you will, John the Baptist from the scene as Jesus begins his public ministry. They do that for the sake of the way that they're telling the story. Because the emphasis between the two, between John the Baptist and the arrival of Jesus in his earthly ministry, the emphasis is on the transition from the old age of promise to the new age of fulfillment. Not that kind of new age, but you get the point. Mark gives more attention to the theological implications that are happening than the chronological things that are happening. 
Also, in a very real way, John the Baptist, unlike any other prophet, has one foot in each age. He was the last prophet, and he continued ministering after Jesus showed up on the scene. Verses 14 and 15 serve as a summary statement of the ministry as well as the message of Jesus Christ. It is his essential message packaged wonderfully, concisely. He came preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But before we look at that further, let's notice again that transitional statement after John had been taken into custody. After John had been delivered up as a prisoner, the phrase that's used here referring to John the Baptist being arrested and imprisoned is exactly the same as chapter 13, verse 9, they will deliver you into the courts. Or chapter 13, verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, it's literally that handing over. Or verse 13, 12, pardon, chapter 13, verse 12, brother will betray or hand over brother. Or chapter 9, verse 31, the son of man, Jesus says, is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Chapter 10, verse 33, the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And not only that, but eight more times in chapters 14 and 15, specifically referring to Jesus Christ which helps us understand again and answer the question of whose hand is actually behind the arrest and eventual death of John the Baptist. It's made clear. Now, while Herod the king, Herod Antipas, was certainly playing his part, doing his bidding as a pawn in the hand of God, he no doubt assumed that he was simply getting a political nemesis out of the way with John the Baptist's imprisonment. Herod was unquestionably clueless that his antics were setting the stage, actually, for the preaching and the ministry of the king that John the Baptist had been promising. Herod was doing nothing but playing into the plan of God. John the Baptist served as a forerunner of Jesus, not only in his message of repentance and forgiveness, but also in his suffering that we're seeing now and eventual death that we will see later. The time is fulfilled. Two specific things regarding the kingdom that we want to note. The nearness of the kingdom and the need to respond to the kingdom. Jesus notes its nearness. It's so near that it's here. The time is fulfilled. This time is a particular moment that is so significant that it defines everything that follows it. That's what's included in the original of this phrase. The time is fulfilled. Specifically, fulfilled is a a super filling to the point of overflowing. This is not putting as much coffee in your mug as you can sip without spilling it. It is overflowing onto the counter. And the floor. It is a super filling. The time was completely fulfilled. The moment 
that had been building, that had been being promised, that had been being prophesied, that moment had arrived. And Jesus is on the scene declaring that time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God that was long promised and long prophesied, it is at hand. It is now. It is before you. It is a present reality and it is a future hope. It is already and it's not yet. It's the age of promise that's giving away to the age of fulfillment. The kingdom was at hand because the king had arrived. And the king himself says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Not only is the kingdom near, there's a need to respond. And we hear it from the lips of our Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin is the message of Jesus Christ. Acknowledge the truth of God. Believe in him. Believe that Christ came to save you from your sin. Turn not only from your sin, but turn to God in faith is the message of the gospel. It's the message of our Lord. And he came preaching this truth from the beginning of his ministry to the end and accomplishing everything that makes it possible for us as his people to both turn from our sin and to trust in him initially and in an ongoing fashion, moment by moment, day after day. So we follow Jesus in temptation. We follow him serving in his kingdom, and we follow him as his disciples. Verse 16 through 20. After this extraordinary announcement of hope and victory, in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. We're ready for earth-shattering, heaven-shaking events to take place. But that's not what happens, not at all. Nothing sensational happens. Nothing spectacular. Jesus is merely walking along the sea, bidding fishermen, common laborers, to come join him on a mission. In these five verses, two pairs of fishermen, brothers, were called. Initially, Andrew and Simon Peter, and then James and his brother John. There's no prerequisites noted for these men. There were no theology exams offered. Just wholehearted obedience. They had no rank, no riches, no power. They did have a wide range of flawed personalities and a complete absence of academic qualifications. And they were called right out of their normal vocational responsibilities, not unlike other men throughout the scriptures who were called to serve God. Moses was keeping sheep when God appeared to him in the burning bush. Gideon was thrashing wheat when the angel came with a message from heaven. Elisha was plowing, and Elijah called him to take his place as the next prophet. These disciples were out fishing to provide for their families when Christ calls them to come and to follow him. Peter, James, and John, three of these initial four, will become core inner circle disciples. Peter, eventually the most prominent, distinguished both by his folly as well as his understanding. I will make you become fishers of men. The Old Testament contains several images of fishing for people. 
And every time, it's in the context of judgment, impending judgment. Listen to Ezekiel 29, verses 4 and 5. I'll put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your rivers cling to your scales. And I'll bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. Jesus takes this Old Testament image of, and reverses it, making fishing for people, rescuing them from death and sin by calling them into God's kingdom. Fishing for people is now turned on its head, as it were. And it's rescuing people from their sin and from impending judgment and death. Most of us in here have probably been fishing before. If you haven't been, you should go. Fishing creates division. Every time a fisherman leaves the pond, the lake, or the river, there's a division happening between the caught and the uncaught. Lots of us leave pretty frustrated that the uncaught are the majority. Jesus makes the aim of people fishing to rescue people from judgment rather than catching them for judgment. If we fill out the metaphor a little bit, the world, we as sinners in the world are in a river all flowing downstream, headed for hell and judgment and damnation and separation. We're headed that way by nature because of what happened in the garden when we fell in our Father Adam. But Jesus came to rescue us from that headlong stream into hell. And he began picking us out one by one, having accomplished everything that was necessary for our salvation. Now the Spirit comes and through the preached gospel applies the truth of God and changes hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and plucks us out as brands of the burning, takes us out of the miry clay and puts our feet on the solid rock. He's flipped this metaphor from the Old Testament, the imagery on its head, and he says to these initial disciples, I will make you become fishers of men. Don't, don't miss that little word. I'll make you become fishers of men. They weren't transformed in an instant overnight. It's as if Jesus was committing to them, committing to coming alongside them. I will train you in the art of people fishing. He didn't say, I'm going to make you an expert. He didn't say, you know, come to Jesus today and next week you'll have it all figured out. It's a process. And the glorious reality of this is that Jesus is committed to the process. He's committed to accomplishing a miracle in these men. He's committed to accomplishing the miracle in every one of us. Their willingness 
To immediately obey is worth noting. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired hands and went away to follow him. He called, they followed. The authority of Jesus' words, the urgency of the call demands an absolute response. In these initial two pairs of brothers, these four disciples, there was no pause, no hesitation, no second thought, no lingering consideration, no what-ifs, no but-ifs. Jesus called, they answered. They were willing to follow him, to follow the king, the one who came declaring that the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand. They were willing to keep on repenting and keep on believing and keep on following because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. They recognize, like we should fight to, that everything exists for him and for his glory. Recognize that we as humans are the pinnacle of his creation. He's created us in his own image. Recognizing that we are guilty, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, and notice there that when the first test came from the adversary, we rejected God's sovereignty, we defied his commandments, we entered into a fallen state and were sentenced to divine judgment and placed under a divine curse. As a result of our sin, evil and disease and suffering and decay and death are constants in the world in which we live. But, but the message of the kingdom that Christ came to proclaim is not that history is an endless cycle of sin and suffering and death. Redemptive history, on the other hand, is linear. It's not circular. We're not in a hopeless, circular, miserable endless cycle of sin and suffering and death. But with redemptive history, there's a beginning, and there's a middle, and there's an end. And here's the beginning of the kingdom, and we're living in the middle of it, and the end is coming. God started it, and he will end it. And the glorious thing about that is, the hopeful thing about that is, that God's end is actually a new beginning. The restoration of creation as it was intended to be, happening one soul at a time as we're fished out of that sea of misery that's headed to hell. The kingdom of God is at hand. The announcement from Jesus at the beginning of his gospel ministry is that the end game has begun. There are three commands from Christ here in the second two sections of verses that we have looked at this morning. Three commands. Repent and believe the gospel. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he called them. Verse 20. Repent and believe the gospel. There's an expectation to respond. Follow me, I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left left their nets and followed him. And third, he called them. They left and went away to follow him, Mark records. When Jesus speaks, people obey. When Jesus speaks, demons are put to flight. 
When Jesus speaks, diseases are healed. When Jesus speaks, storm waves are calmed. When Jesus speaks, debate experts are rendered speechless. The kingdom of God is now at hand. It is present. Not because everyone acknowledges God's rightful rule, but because a relationship with the king is now available. Jesus offers an invitation, gives a command to repent and believe and enter the kingdom of God. And as we continue our way through the gospel according to Mark, I think it will be helpful if we think of it this way. We're going to be receiving postcards along the way from the kingdom. Postcards that reveal things like exorcisms happening that reveal God's power over Satan. Or postcards that show us healings that demonstrate God's redeeming of fallen humanity. Or postcards that show that forgiveness confirms the power of sin being broken. Or postcards that remind us that miracles over nature that have happened, show God restoring all of fallen creation. Postcards, if you will, that remind us that God's power is present among us and his promises that final consummation is coming. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And because of the day in which we live and the culture of Christianity that we're surrounded by, we could go further and say the subculture that we're prone to fall into. We should hear the words of Christ crystal clear, being careful not to add anything to it or take anything away being wary of counterfeit confessions and bogus baptisms and meaningless membership, and hearing as clearly as the Spirit will allow us to hear, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I mentioned previously that when Jesus speaks, people obey. You may be thinking, I haven't responded to that command. I haven't obeyed. I'm an exception. You're only an exception for a moment. The power of Christ will be displayed, either conquering your heart as you come to him or casting you out into the outer darkness forever separated from him. Jesus came preaching the good news that Christ came to save sinners. What is your response to that command, that requirement, that expectation? Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your Son, 
who lived and died in order that we might belong to you, who is coming again in order that we might live with you forever. We thank you for the change that you have wrought in each of your children through the work of your spirit. We thank you for the work that you continue to do on our behalf, hearing our prayers and being our help. God, we pray that you would work in order that we as your people might be a people who are marked by repenting and believing the gospel. That we might benefit from your ministry to us and among us as we live in the wilderness and suffer temptation and trial. And God, we pray that we would be disciples like these that we've read about who are very willing to follow you immediately and at all cost. God, we pray for those who stand at a distance and do not know you, for those who are reluctant to respond in faith and repentance, God, grant them faith and repentance. Work mightily in their heart. Woo them to yourself. We thank you, God, that we can trust you and your power to accomplish your will among your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.